0: This poor soul's journey has come to an end, from dust we started, to dust we returned. Every
1: corpse tells a story, it's our task to listen. So these are all
2: stories about how people died? Some tales even I find too unsettling to recount. You gotta get that body out
0: of your apartment. Keep your doors locked tonight keep an eye out for crazies oh, monsters oh,
2: that's pretty cool yes it is isn't it
1: There's no use running. Your story is just beginning. (laughs) Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm Mike and joining me as always it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing Venom?
0: Greetings and salutations, anthology lovers. Yes, I'm doing great, Mike. How you doing?
1: Doing well. We are only a handful of days until Halloween. October has officially flown by, and this is, now that I think of it, the final fresh cuts of October. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, doing well. Joining us, as almost always now, it's Don and Nelly. How you doing, Don?
2: Hey, what's going on, folks? Yep, uh, just enjoying this fantastic autumn air. Ah, uh, feels so good, dude. Finally know that this shit show of a year is finally over because just around the corner, Christmas time, and my favorite time of the year, Halloween through Christmas.
1: And in, in a span of two weeks, we went from having to turn on the AC to, oh, we can open the doors and windows for a breeze to today, it was like too chilly to even have the door and windows open. Yeah, I I, I had to dig
2: the (laughs) I had to dig the comforter out for my bed because I've been I don't use the comforter, I just use the regular sheet. Uh huh. Yeah, so this year, today I was the first day I dug my comforter out. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it actually feels like the month we're in now, finally.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, we are covering an anthology, as you might have guessed, from... I, I, I wonder. I always wonder if people pick up on uh, the fact that Venom kind of gives away the theme of the movie in his intro. Um, but yes, we, we are indeed doing an anthology tonight. The Mortuary Collection, which is now streaming on Shudder. And let's see, I will take a synopsis off IMDb, I think. Hmm... No, I won't because yeah, it, it kind of gives away – I mean, if yeah. you consider the wraparound story a story in itself, then it kind of gives away a little much for that. So I will just say that uh, there's a mortician, and he ends up telling stories to someone that stumbles into his mortuary, and I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, so general thoughts we will get into first. So Venom, I will kick it to you. What did you think of the Martuary Collection?
0: Overall, I thought it was a really fun movie. It has some really, really nice gore. There's some very gory moments in here um a lot you know basically what you would expect from a you know uh horror comedy uh anthology halloween type film not that it's set on halloween or anything like that but it did get released this month so it'll probably be forever remembered as a halloween watch um I think Clancy Brown was absolutely stellar in this role. I I literally, at the end of the movie, was trying to think what actors could have played that role as well or better than him. And honestly, I can only think of a couple, one who is dead and one who is in no condition to act anymore. So uh, I would probably say Clancy Brown's probably pitch perfect casting for this particular role as the mortician by the way what a spectacular name montgomery dark yes and they they even have a little joke about it in the movie where he says where he kind of rolls his eyes and says it's a family name <laughs> so i I've absolutely love that um yeah the segments obviously as with any anthology there's going to be certain segments that are stronger than others um the truly great horror anthologies the, the trick or treats the creep shows um they they have such a what's the word I'm looking for they have such a great knack of being able to take a big story and still shrink it down to like a 10 to 20 minute length and still give us a solid beginning middle and end unfortunately this movie there's um there's a story or two in here that are very um detached and i know a lot of people who are listening to my voice right now and who have seen this movie think i'm talking about the first segment i am not i love the first segment but we'll get into the why you know when we get into the spoiler section but yeah there are a couple of stories in here that are missing some fairly vital plot points um and the thing is is that especially with modern anthologies it's the kind of thing that you know directors think that they can give us an incomplete story and that that's going to be satisfactory to the average viewer. I still like seeing a beginning, middle and end, even if it's a five minute segment, I still want to see some, some kind of story arc. And unfortunately, especially there's one particular story in this one that really left me scratching my head. Visually. It's beautiful. There's some great, um, visuals in it some great set pieces but there's a there's information missing that just leaves you scratching your head by the time we get to the end of that particular segment um but overall you know we've got four segments most of them are strong some people might argue that all of them are strong and I wouldn't argue with them if they were to say that um great acting throughout there's um there's maybe one or two performances that are a little hammy over the top but i think that that was an intentional choice i think that uh, those particular over-the-top performances fit for the, uh, you know, for the content that we're watching. Clancy Brown's obviously going to be the first example of that, um, you know, with his overly dark and brooding mortician. Um, isn't it funny how morticians always dress the same in movies? It's almost like they have a uniform. But you know, what <laughs> <in>? yeah, <exactly. laughs> the, the big top hat and everything. It's funny. Uh, anyway. Which obviously got me thinking about Angus Scrim, you know, as the tall man. That holy shit, how great would he have been in this role uh, had he, you know, been alive, rest in peace. But um, just to cut this short, I really had a good time with this movie. It's a little long; it is an hour and fifty minutes, um, but ultimately it didn't feel all that long because I was enjoying my time with it. Um, I was enjoying. Like I said, there's some great gore, some great kills throughout, lots of blood. It's a it's a nice juicy movie, uh, a satisfying ending for the most part. Maybe the very last epitaph of the movie I had a little bit of an issue with, but we'll get into that in the spoiler section. But overall, very satisfying, very fun, bloody, well edited, well directed, performed. I a decent score. The score doesn't really stick out much for me except for one particular sequence um in one of the segments which again we'll get into in the spoiler section but um overall yeah really fun movie really enjoyed it um i'd probably say the scare package is probably still my favorite anthology of the year but this one is a very very close second uh this one i would probably say is a little bit more fun but both you know um, both of those films to me, are stellar anthologies, and this one is no exception. It's not quite gonna hit the upper echelon of creep show trick or treats movies like that. But it is um, a solid film for 2020, something that will probably uh, now be a part of my Halloween rotation as anyone who knows me knows I love horror anthologies. You know, this is right up there with some of the ones we've gotten over the last few years, like Tales of Halloween and Christmas Horror Story, things like that. So, yeah, great movie. Really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it.
1: All right. How about you, Don?
2: Um, I don't have much uh, different uh, to add to Venom. Uh, he hit pretty much where I fall in line with this. Um, I really enjoy this one. Maybe two segments like, one or two segments that don't hit for me, but, you know, as an anthology, that's to be expected. Um, uh, again, he, he, he really hit it. Uh, fun stories, a uh, couple of them seem a little underwritten than others. But uh, by and large, the, this is definitely a lot of fun if, like you said, a tad over long and i i most of that for me is directed at one segment which um as he mentioned will probably be mentioned in the spoilers but uh yeah uh, i'm right in line with him uh fun for the most part great uh atmosphere for the season maybe not necessarily again you know like the upper echelon of where we're gonna land for the year but um it, I don't have much else differently to add to him. Um, maybe I think the only difference is, is for us is going to be which segments we like. Cause mm-hmm. I got a feeling there's going to be one or I got a feeling we're probably going to differ on one or two from, from each other. But mm-hmm. um, until we get to the spoiler section, I don't have much else. So um, I'm right there with him. Maybe um, like I said, where we li- line up on each of the segments is going to be different, but what he said, um, I second that.
1: Okay. Um, as far as I go, yeah, uh, another week of kind of echoing what's already been said, you know, was an anthology. You're going to get, uh, mixed results. I think overall, I, I enjoyed most everything this one offered. Obviously there's the stronger ones, which we might all differ on. Maybe not, but, um, I, I think for the most part, this is definitely worth a watch. I had a lot of fun with it. I love anthologies in the month of October. Um, I, I, I This one, it, it comes in just, well, about 10 minutes shy of two hours. So it is kind of weird <laughs> to me. I mean, I guess the fact that, you know, the segments are so different in length in this one. But, hey, I mean, I guess that was just story decision and how they had story or lack of story for someone as venom kind of referenced um but overall you know i thought you know there's some creative storytelling in this one and i did like the wraparound story and how it was i think um somewhat you could see it coming but still i i still like the way it ended and uh yeah I, I think as a anthology it was successful in delivering what you kind of want out of them and I mean, hey, they can't all be Creep Show, right? I mean, it's hard to compare <laughs> to like the damn near perfect anthology. Right. So, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it to open the show, but it is streaming on Shutter. So, which is definitely...
2: which is incredibly odd in the fact that most of us actually forget Creepshow Show is over two hours. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh no! Yeah, I, it, it is. Yeah, I'm very happy and, with that. That's
2: the <laughs> but I'm saying like that's the weird thing. Every single one of us mentioned the pacing and yet this is 15 minutes shorter with five segments just like Creepshow does.
1: Yeah. I'm saying, like,
2: that's the weird thing. Everybody, all of us brought up the pacing, but yet all of us compared it to Creepshow, and yet Creepshow is 20 minutes longer. Yep.
0: But it's also 20 minutes better, so. (laughs) Probably.
1: Yeah, I think Creepshow is just that, like... it had that unique ability to where it almost felt like they were feature length stories condensed down into an anthology where you could almost watch like a full movie on any one of the stories and you'd be happy. But, um, Hey, before this turns into the creep show cast, let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's kick it to venom. I mean, I don't have much to add as far as general thoughts. It's kind of even hard to break down an anthology without spoiling anything. So yeah. we might as well just get to it.
0: I did want to add though. I wanted to, Talk about Don's point about uh, some of the homages and kind of um, uh, maybe not references like direct references, but uh, just style points and things like that. Right from the onset, this movie feels like a Tim Burton movie. I mean the entire town of Raven's End looks like a uh, a Tim Burton creation. It literally looks like it could have been the town in uh Edward Scissorhands or, you know, Frank and Weenie or any of his like you know, great dark films. Um It looks like it's shot completely inside on a set. It doesn't look like there's any actual, like, outdoor location filming. I'm not saying that's what they did. I'm saying that's what it looks like.
2: For the wraparound or for the individual Well, the wraparound
0: specifically, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the intro right now, yeah. So, you know, it has... Even the music. The music during the opening even sounds like Danny Elfman. So it even gives you that kind of feel that it could be a Tim Burton joint, you know, it, it, it has, uh, the soundtrack's very reminiscent of stuff like Beetlejuice um, and, and Edward Scissorhands again. So yeah. Um, yeah. The homages are right there, right from the start. And, but the art style of this film, I absolutely love. I love the design of the house itself, the mortuary. I think it looks, it, it's it's right out of a comic book. I mean, it looks so over the top silly Victorian that, it doesn't it almost doesn't look real it looks like it was built for the movie but whether it's real or not i love it it looks great both outside and in it's got obviously a kind of a labyrinth interior for obvious reasons later on but um yeah I, as far as non-spoiler stuff, man, I think that's probably all I can get into. But yeah, I just I love the set design, the art design, the costume design in this movie is even great because the segments all take place in different time periods. Like the very first segment solidly looks like it takes place in the either the fifties or the sixties. Then no, the no, second they,
2: they say they say that specifically each of them take place in different decades.
0: No, that's perfect sense then. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah he yeah.
2: specific. Yeah, he specifically lays out to the girl that the stories he's going to tell take place in different decades.
0: Ah, okay. I I missed that line. Then I might've been taking notes or something, but yeah. Um, Ultimately, the aesthetic gives it away regardless whether he said it or not. I mean, you could just see them, you know, segment number three solidly looks like it's from the 70s, the way that they're dressed during the wedding sequence and everything else. So just that that kind of uh, set and costume design just works so well. And even some of the makeup effects, like even even uh, Clancy Brown's uh, uh, Mortician, it's very subtle makeup, you know, but it it still looks great because we know Clancy Brown doesn't look like that. We, yes, he's an older gentleman, but he doesn't look like he's 110 years old by any stretch. So really good makeup design here as well. Like I said, I'm talking up almost every aspect of the movie and uh, it's probably going to be a lot of that as we move forward. Even his pocket watch. Do you guys remember when he opened his pocket watch? That thing was gorgeous. I would kill for that pocket watch and I'm not even a pocket watch guy, but it's just so nice looking. Um, but yeah, like I said, the subtle the subtle um, choices that they made with design and uh, props throughout the film, I mean, even just when you're walking around the mortuary and you see stuff in the background, like old phonographs or, you know, old-timey, like, gas lamps and shit, it just all looks so really, really nice. So kudos to, you know, the production team on this one. They did a great job. But yeah, if you guys don't have anything else, uh, we can get into spoilers. All right, so our movie opens up with a young Asian child riding his bicycle, and he is seen entering the town of Raven's End. Awesome name, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Even the sign for the town looks dark and gothic. I mean, everything is so over-the-top gothic in this movie. And it may turn off a lot of people, but I absolutely love it. It's so great. Um, Even some of the shots inside the mortuary... Uh, where there are open windows and the light streaming in, especially in the actual funeral room. Uh, just gorgeous uh, cinematography here. So anyway, uh, Asian boy riding his bike into Raven's End. He pulls up to the uh, the mortuary, uh, Raven's End Mortuary. Uh, he starts taking pictures, and then he, uh, he lifts up the mail slot. You know, it's got one of those old-timey mail slots in the door that you can see inside the house. He opens it up to take a picture, but when his flash goes off, there are a pair of eyes staring back at him, which, of course, scares him. Uh, His camera, um, what do you call it, the lanyard that the camera is on gets stuck on the door. And then, of course, the door opens and there is Clancy Brown in all his glory as uh, the mortician Montgomery Dark. Of course, it terrifies the little child. I mean, the the kid's like seven or eight years old. He's really small. He's like, (laughs) I I don't want to be racist, but he reminded me of Short Round in the Indiana Jones movie. So, yeah, go figure. Um, So, like I said, he ends up leaving the camera because he's too terrified of the mortician. And he just runs away and calls him a creepo as he's running away. And then we get our first little bit of levity when Clancy Brown says, hmm, Creepo, I haven't heard that one before. So uh, so obviously he's used to being made fun of by the Children of Raven's and Lord knows how long he's been there. But, I mean, when you see, when when we finally get into the mortuary and we see, like, the size of the library and all the books in there, it's very obvious that the mortician's been there a very long time. So... Um, after that opening scene, we then meet young Sam. Sam is a uh, kind of teenage to maybe mid 20s age girl um, who actually does a great job in this movie. Like, I wasn't really on board with her throughout the movie because it was obviously with modern day anthologies and a wraparound story this involved, you know there's going to be some kind of swerve in the wraparound story itself. And obviously, most of us are expecting Clancy Brown. To have some kind of weird twist, but I was fully expecting her, you know, to have to have some kind of twist. So we'll see if I was right or not. Um, <laughs> Sam uh, walks in, introduces herself and says that she's interested in the help wanted sign that's outside. Obviously, that's your first red flag. Why does this young pretty girl want to work around dead bodies constantly? Hmm. OK, so. um Clancy Brown, uh, the mortician Mon- Montgomery Dark, uh, basically says, the, you know, to follow him. They go to his office. He asks her a series of questions, you know, talking about how surprised he is that someone like her would come looking for a job. Um, oh, I forgot to actually mention and ask you guys if you noticed um, during the sequence when the Asian kid was riding through town and he went by those fishermen. Did you notice what was in those traps? That, no. that's like, so I don't know exactly I, I what didn't. it was, but it, those were not fucking crabs. Those were like some kind of Lovecraftian nightmare. I, I, I mm. rewound that scene, because it, it's only shown on screen for like literally like a second or two, but I rewound it multiple times, and I'm like, that is not a fucking crab. That's some kind of nightmare creature. Tentacles. But the Asian kid... <laughs> The Asian kid just rode by it and didn't even acknowledge it. So I didn't
2: even, I didn't even pay any notice. I was supposed to pay attention. So I was just like him.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big time. Uh, And like I said, I almost missed it myself, but as it went by, I'm like, those do not look like crab legs sticking out of there. And yeah, it's not like it's a creature that we've seen before. It's just very obviously not a crab. Uh, So anyway, um, during the interview process, uh, Sam mentions or she comments to the mortician about his library and how he has so many books and blah, blah, blah. And he he starts talking about, well, these are all the stories of the people that I've worked on over the years here. Uh, basically, every person who dies has a story to tell. And as the mortician, it's our job to find out that story. Obviously, Sam is a little, you know. Uh, maybe doesn't necessarily buy into it completely, but she, you know, she kind of plays along. And then she requests uh, the mortician to tell her a story. And so our movie begins. And the mortician decides to tell a very simple story first. And we go to our first segment. And our first segment is literally one actor in one room for the entire thing. And basically how it starts is we see this beautiful young woman uh wearing this uh very nice cocktail dress like she's out at a party or something and it's very obviously the 50s or the 60s based on her hairstyle her clothing even the design in the bathroom the fixtures everything else um as she walks into the bathroom and locks the door behind her she hears a voice from outside the door it's a male voice who uh, of a guy who's obviously following her around He starts talking about how, oh, when we were outside, I thought I felt some kind of spark between us. You know, I don't know. Am I crazy? I think I'm crazy. Um, She doesn't acknowledge anything. She basically just says, you know, I'll meet you in the veranda uh, in 10 minutes. Also giving you an idea of how uh, the setting, the time setting, because no one says veranda anymore. (laughs) But um, so... After the guy leaves her alone, she goes into the bathroom, she sits on the toilet, not to use it, but she, she sits on it with the, with the lid on it, and then she pulls over the trash can, and then she pulls out all of these wallets. And as it turns out, yes, our, our female protagonist has basically been pickpocketing men all through this party, and that's probably why she felt nervous when that one followed her to the bathroom. Um, so she's basically going through all the wallets that she found, uh, she's pulling out all the cash out of every wallet, putting it in her bra, throwing the empty wallet into the garbage can in front of her, and and then the last thing that she pulls out is a pocket watch. Apparently she was able to pickpocket somebody's uh, watch right off of them. It is not the watch that Montgomery Dark has, though. This one isn't nearly as nice, so um, just to let you know, there's not there's not a connection that way. But anyway... After she uh, clears out all the wallets and puts the pocket watch away, she's about to leave the bathroom, but then she looks up and sees a medicine cabinet with a key lock on it. And she obviously, you know, sees that and is like, who locks their medicine cabinet? Uh, So she probably thinks that there's something of value in there or potentially some really good drugs, who knows? So she pulls a nail file out and picks the lock of um, of the medicine cabinet. When she opens the medicine cabinet, she does it fairly violently to the point that she actually cuts her finger and a little bit of blood drops into the bathroom sink. Uh, Once she realizes that her finger is bleeding, she grabs some tissue to wrap around her her wound. And then right as she's wrapping her wound, the medicine chest door slams shut like something from the other side was closing it on her. Um, eventually she pries the door open again and looks inside and it's just, it looks like a Lovecraftian hellscape void in there, like just some giant tentacle monster just staring back at her. Um, you know, uh, the old adage, when you stare into the void, the void stares back at you. That's kind of what we're looking at here. She and... Uh, um something reaches out towards her tentacles obviously (laughs) um but she's able to escape and she closes the um the medicine cabinet door unfortunately whatever's on the other side is trying to get out is trying to push the door open now that she knows that uh it is in there um so she's holding it closed while something on the other side's trying to get it open uh Eventually the noise stops and she thinks, okay, maybe it's safe for me to leave. So she starts to very quietly leave the bathroom. She's tiptoeing. She gets a few feet away from the medicine cabinet. It hasn't opened yet. So she thinks she's in the clear, but then she drops the pocket watch that she just stole off someone. And that makes a loud enough noise that the creature inside the medicine cabinet throws the door open and just giant tentacles reach out and grab her and start pulling her through the medicine cabinet. Now, everybody knows that a medicine cabinet isn't very big. So um, basically, the creature grabs her by the waist and pulls her into the medicine cabinet, but he pulls her in with so much force that he actually bends her backwards, and there is a spectacular sound effect for her spine breaking. I actually love the sound design on that particular uh, death. She, You hear her back break. She, um, She goes limp. She basically, at this point, is already dead, but she still hasn't been pulled completely through, so then the creature, you know takes one last yank, pulls her completely through. And then in a a little bit of humor to end the segment, we see a single tentacle come out of the medicine cabinet and turn the lights off in the bathroom and then go back into the medicine cabinet. That is the end of our first segment. Um, I also forgot to mention that the segments are not individually titled. Um, so I basically gave them I gave them all titles of my own. I hope you like them. I called segment number one Lovecraftian Medicine Cabinet. I like it. I'll, oh, wait. I'll take it. <laughs>
1: I think um, it was a fun opening segment. Pretty pretty yeah, stretched the and a satisfying <laughs> conclusion.
0: Absolutely. And a lot of people are going to say that that story feels incomplete. What you have to understand about that is with the inclusion of that monster in the medicine cabinet, that makes this a Lovecraftian story or a cosmic horror story, if you will. And um, a lot of movie viewers' major complaints with Lovecraftian horror is how it doesn't get explained. But that is the point of cosmic horror. It is bigger than us. It doesn't give a shit about us. It doesn't need to explain itself or be explained. So you have to understand that even though this this segment is probably, what, five to ten minutes long, and there's no real narrative or story arc or anything, it's literally just a single woman versus a medicine cabinet monster, It is a solid Lovecraftian entry. I think HP himself would be very happy with this story because they don't explain anything and they just leave it open. So there you go. The end of segment number one. Okay, so at this point, we go back uh, to the mortuary, and the girl uh, basically says to the mortician, that story sucks. Uh, but she's unhappy that it was so quick that there wasn't much of a, you know, any kind of character development or story arc or anything like that. And he's like, well, obviously not all stories are going to be the darkest, most twisted things out there. So, um, they basically continue their tour through the mortuary. Um, you know, they look at the funeral room. They're looking at random pictures. She ends up running, uh, past a picture in the mor- in the mort- mortician's house that actually has him very uh, very Jack Torrance in the Shining style, where it's got him in a picture that's way too old for him to actually be in it. Like the picture looks like it's from the 1800s, but he only looks like he's maybe 20 years younger in the picture. In the picture, so you know, uh, kind of starting to build the mystery a little bit here. So then they proceed to the funeral room, the actual room where the funerals take place and the families come and, you know, um, witness uh, the body, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there is a small, um, and I forgot to mention, too, that uh, at, earlier in the film, there actually was a funeral going on for a child that was recently killed. Um, the child was killed by a serial killer, um, I forgot, something Tooth Fairy. Was it the Raven's End Tooth Fairy, maybe? Something like that? It, it had a... Yeah, um...
2: He said it once, and I can't remember.
0: Exactly, and it's in the news... It's in a couple of newspaper clippings, too, that, you know, uh, newspapers for exposition. So that's always nice. But, um, so, yeah. Um, we're basically at the at the casket of a child who was the victim of the serial killer, she goes to open it and he closes it instantly and he says no you're not ready for this yet and you know and she asks to hear his story and he's like no some stories should not be shared um blah 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 so they end up leaving uh the funeral area and we go to our second segment and the last thing that's said. Uh, before the start of the seg- second segment, by the by, the mortician is better safe than sorry. So I decided to call this segment "Better Safe Than Sorry." I like it. So that one was easy. And what we have here is we have your standard good-looking douchebag college student who's um, outside on the on the quad, and he's handing out condoms uh, to all the female students and male students too, if they want any. But he's basically coming at the angle of female empowerment. He's basically saying that, you know, women should have the right to, you know, make a guy wear a condom and, and feel sexually liberated and blah, blah, blah. But obviously it's just a ploy because at the end of all of these interactions, he invites all these girls to a party at his frat house that night. Um, we meet a couple of his little buddies. One of them is just a complete silly little loser nerd guy who is really more annoying than anything, but he does actually have some decent comic relief throughout. He says a couple of funny things here and there. Uh, None of them come to mind, but, you know, I I do remember him being mildly funny for the, you know, goofy nerd loser. Um, So finally, uh, at some point, the nerd goes into one of the school buildings and he sees this beautiful girl, this beautiful young girl. She's dressed very demure, you know, not slutty or anything like that. And, and I, and he's basically smitten with her instantly. He follows her into the building and starts talking to her. He starts trying to give the same spiel that the, that the cool douchebag outside was giving, but he obviously in a comedic fashion, he fucks it all up. He's, you know, he basically just walks up to her and says, hey, do you want a condom? Like without explaining anything about what he's doing. Um, The girl's obviously taken aback because she obviously is new to the school, or at least that's how she's portrayed. Because she doesn't have any friends and she's, like I said, very demure, very quiet and kind of keeping to herself. Uh, Finally, our douchebag shows up and tells, you know, tells our nerd that he has something... That he needs him to do. He actually lies to him and says, "Hey, the lacrosse team is out at the table and they're looking for information about what we do." Uh, the nerd obviously gets all excited because it's the you know the female lacrosse team. Ooh, there's got to be some good-looking girls on that. He runs. He runs to go back to the table, and then the douchebag admits to the girl, "We don't have a lacrosse team." Yeah, that guy's an idiot. So, what are you gonna do? Um, at this point, our douchebag introduces himself. Um, to our girl her name is Sandra. I forget what our douchebag's name is. Do we remember what his name was? Damn it. That's the problem with anthologies is the characters aren't on screen long enough for me to always um, their name. Yeah, that's it's Yeah, I'm Jake. That usually good. Jake, that sounds right. I remember the girls. I, I, god, god damn it, I'm he, sexist. I, I remember the three girls.
1: <laughs> Jake, the actor um he He's in that HBO show, Euphoria, and he also kind of plays like a – I think he's like the star of the high school football team jock douchebag, like stereotypical guy. So in this role, in this anthology, it was kind of like what he was used to playing already. Yeah,
0: yeah. He wasn't
1: necessarily like a sports jock in this movie, but kind of like the same – uh, yeah, know. I
0: mean, he's a fraternity asshole. I mean, they all look alike. Yeah, exactly. We all, we all saw Black Christmas 2019, unfortunately. So, yeah, we're all <laughs> aware of <with> this type <laughs> of character. Oh, man. anyway. Um, so he continues talking to Sandra, the pretty girl in question, and he makes a joke to her that kind of backfires on him. He says to her, oh, I only come to these things to get laid. And she instantly replies, oh, yeah, so do I. And it totally takes him aback because, you know, he thought he was making a joke to this girl and that she would get all whatever. I'm not sure what he was expecting, but he definitely wasn't expecting that reply. And then he, you know, lets her know, I was joking. Eventually the conversation ends with him inviting her to the frat house for the party, as he's doing with all the girls, and she accepts. So later that evening, uh, our party, or, or before the party starts, uh, Jake is kind of just having, you know, a back and forth with a couple of his frat brothers, the nerd and that one Asian guy specifically, who seems like he's potentially the head of the frat, uh, because later on there's a ceremony that he's leading. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, So after that interaction, uh, then the party starts, people start showing up and then Jake sees Sandra out of the corner of his eye, walk by him Um, he starts to follow her, but then she out of nowhere disappears. Like, literally, somebody walks by in between him and her, like his line of sight, and, and they do that disappearing thing where she just completely is gone. He starts, like, wondering where she went. So he starts going around the house looking for her, and eventually she comes walking out of the hallway that she should have just walked into. So there's definitely something weird going on at this point. Um, Jake walks up to her, they start talking, and literally within seconds, they are upstairs in Jake's bedroom, making out, starting to have, uh, um, you know, starting to make out and have sex. One thing that I forgot, uh, another thing I forgot to mention, I'm very sorry, folks, after Jake invites Sandra to um, to the party... As Sandra is walking away, the camera then pans to a bulletin board full of missing persons posters and all the posters are men. They're all like college age guys. It's all guys from the campus. Um, so, the, yeah, the movie is a little heavy handed right there. It's like, ah, oh, why did you even show me that shot? You know, I mean, I, we all know that there's something up with this girl right from the start. But to show me that shot, like I said, it's a little heavy handed, too on the nose. You know, they should have kept the mystery a little bit longer. Anyway, whatever. Um, when Jake and Sandra are upstairs making out in the bedroom, uh, she stops making out with them and says, aren't you worried about your safety? And he's like, no, no, I trust everybody here. And she's like, well, no, I mean me. We, you've never met me before ever. I could be a serial killer. Especially with a, a serial killer going around campus, you know, killing people, killing guys right now. And he obviously plays it off because this girl's like this little timid little thing, blah, blah, blah. Typical um, so
1: freshman, freshman, that's Exactly. Yeah. Ready yep, for the taking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so she's on top of him in the cowgirl position. They're not quite having sex yet. They're still fully clothed. But, um... She starts to pull something out of her back, like her back waistline, and obviously it looks like it's going to be like a knife or some kind of weapon, but uh, once again, in a little attempt at humor, she pulls it out, and it's one of the condoms that they were handing out earlier in the day. She hands it to him, and he obviously instantly is like, uh, Really? And she's like, well, yeah, I want to be empowered. You know, she's basically using his line against him from earlier. He relents. He puts the condom on, and they start actually having intercourse. And you could see the look on his face where he's extremely unhappy that he's wearing a condom. Uh, I don't know. I, I never understood that whole I don't feel anything with a condom on because uh, they must be using sandpaper condoms because I've never... I've never had that issue, but whatever. That's a story for another podcast. Um, So anyway, he tells her to turn around after literally a couple of seconds of them in Cowgirl. And as she turns around to get into the doggy style position, he obviously, thinking he's all slick, pulls the condom off. But then he does something stupid. He like flings it across the room, which makes a very loud noise. So obviously, the girl heard that he took the condom off, but she doesn't do anything. She doesn't stop him, blah, blah, blah. Then we get a cute little montage where we see them in like every position under the sun, and we see that there's a clock in the shot, and every time the shot changes, The clock advances like forty minutes, forty-five minutes. So literally, he was
1: he was totally doing like the Patrick Bateman thing, like flexing and being all fucking (laughs) cocky.
0: Exactly. At one point, he raised his arms like he just won the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So anyway, it's seven a.m. He wakes up. The girl is gone. Sandra has left. He instantly smiles because that's every guy, well, every college guy's dream to wake up and the girl's not even there. Blah blah blah. But then suddenly he gets sick. He starts vomiting violently in the bathroom. And then he looks down at him. He looks down uh, near his waist area and he notices that he has a major rash or something going on down there. Um, it looks awful. I mean, it, it looks like the kind of thing where even if he wore a condom, he wasn't going to avoid that. Um, but I digress. Um he, like I said he starts uh, he thinks that it's an STD so he ends up going to the doctor's office by the way this doctor is in every segment except the first one because obviously the first segment it's just one girl one room but then we uh I forget the doctor's name exactly but uh, the doctor comes in and uh you know Jake thinks he has an STD he thinks he caught something from the girl the is instantly like okay let's uh, let's take a look and see what's what and he, start, he, he grabs his stethoscope, and he starts checking his heartbeat. And, you know, he hears Jake's heartbeat, and it's normal. But then he starts moving the stethoscope down. And then he starts to hear something really, really odd. And then he starts, uh, as, the, as the stethoscope hits the guy's belly, he hears a second heartbeat. Yes, my friends, Jake is fucking pregnant. And it even says so on his chart, which obviously made the, dark, the doctor think, wait a minute, there, this can't be right, you know. <laughs> and, and, and once again, in another little attempt at comedy, a, after he realizes that Jake is pregnant, he actually lifts his uh, hospital gown to make sure that there's a penis under there. and He's like, OK, yeah, there's a penis there. But obviously, Jake is very pregnant. Um, he's not showing yet, but there is a second heartbeat and the doctor knows, yeah, there's something really wrong. So basically, uh, Jake, after the doctor leaves the room, Jake takes his file and he reads it and he sees that it says that it's checked off pregnant. And he instantly freaks out and leaves the doctor's office and goes back uh, to his frat house. Uh, When he gets back to his bedroom, he pukes into one of his trophies. And right after he pukes into the trophy, he looks down and realizes he's starting to show. Yes, his belly is actually getting bigger. And I'm talking about in just a few minutes from when he left the doctor's office to when he got back to his uh, house, it looks like he's suddenly in the third trimester. Like the, the belly just went up big time. So obviously uh, um, earlier. Yeah, on, we're
1: talking like the movie Species where yes. the pregnancy is quick.
0: Exactly. Um, so at this point, um, it, as it turns out, um, Sandra had written her uh, phone number in lipstick on his bedroom mirror, but obviously, you know, he wasn't really concerned with the phone number. He was going to ignore it. But at this point with him now looking like he's seven months pregnant, he ends up calling Sandra trying to find her. And basically, um, plays it off doesn't say anything over the phone about what's going on with him he plays it off as oh i just wanted to hang out i wanted to see if you were free to hang out and she says yeah okay no problem let's hang out so at that point uh he asks for the address she gives it to him and he's about to leave the frat house to go to her house unfortunately um sandra the girl that he had sex with the night before was his 67th Conquest since he's been in the frat house. And um, when he gets down to the main area, like the living room of the frat house, all of his frat brothers are there wearing robes and uh, the pledges aren't in robes. The pledges are still in like just regular street clothes, but the, the brothers are all in robes. And they start explaining why the number 67 is sacred. There's 67 cherry trees on the property of the school. There were 67 founders of the great fraternity, which I guess is the fraternity that they're in. Blah, blah, blah. He starts going over all these different things. But while he's dealing with all of this shit... Or while, while the ceremony is going on, he's grabbing his stomach. He's obviously in great pain. He's trying to leave. He's actually trying to get the hell out of the frat house so he can get to Sandra's house. But unfortunately, this ceremony is like a real serious thing because the brothers are not letting him leave. What they end up doing is they put him on like a throne that they can pick up, that they can lift uh, up off the ground. And they hand him a banner, kind of like one of those sports banners. Um... With his name on it, and he now has the privilege of adding his name to the Wall of Fame, which uh, the wall in question has all these banners with different people's last names on it of people that, like I said, have, con- have had sex with at least 67 women uh, you know, since they've been a member of the frat so um basically what happens at this point uh all the brothers try to lift him like i said he's in like a chair that's on like a platform that could be lifted almost like a cleopatra type uh, thing yeah that she would travel on but literally 10 to 12 of them can't lift him it's almost like he weighs a thousand pounds or something they they, uh, they end up calling more brothers over to help them to help them lift him up off the ground they eventually are able to lift him off the ground. He ends up putting uh, his banner up on the wall. And right when he puts the banner up on the wall, I guess the closest analogy I could say is his water broke. Because it's yeah. not really water. I mean, you know, it's yeah. not really weird. There's, like, shit in it. Not, not, not literal shit, but, I mean, there's, like, green pussy stuff in it. And it literally gets all over the brothers below him. Who And literally to the point that the nerd uh, from earlier is completely covered. He's just drenched. It it literally looks like, I don't know, like the Jolly Green Giant just came on him or something. He's just covered head to toe in this shit. Um, Finally, after that happens, um, you know, Jake asks for the keys. He gets the keys, instantly leaves the frat house and goes to the address uh, that was given to him by Sandra. He ends up arriving at the house and being met by an old, not quite older, but like a middle-aged gentleman with an apron on. And the guy, um, he asks Jake, hey, can I help you? And Jake says, yeah, I'm looking for Sandra. And you can see the expression on the guy's face instantly change when he asks for Sandra. And he sees that the guy looks like he's seven months pregnant. So obviously there's something going on that's happened before. Um, he ends up bringing Jake into the house where the where the man's wife is at at like the dinner table and she does the exact same thing. As soon as Jake walks in and she sees the baby bump, she slams her hands on the on the uh, on the table and says, Sandra, get down here, blah, blah, blah. Sandra ends up coming down uh, at that point. Jake is on the table and they've got stirrups. They actually had like those those those. Um, birth giving stirrups that women will put their legs in when they're giving birth uh apparently this has happened so much that they installed stirrups on the dining room table so um they've got them propped up on the uh, on the table and you know he as soon as sandra walks in he points at her and says what the fuck did you do to me and then she looks at him and says well i thought you used protection and instantly jake's demeanor changes he starts apologizing i'm so sorry Blah, blah, blah. Um, He tries to explain why he doesn't like wearing condoms because he used to be a fat kid, Um, you know, and it took and now he's this chiseled Adonis. And, you know, he was always so upset about how hideous he looked and blah, blah, blah. And now once again, he's like, look at me, I'm hideous. I'm fat all over again. Sandra just kind of laughs it off and goes to the telephone, calls a guy and says, oh, turns out I'm free after all. (laughs) So she ends up going, uh, she ends up leaving the house altogether to go to meet this other guy. And, oh man, then we get one of the most violent childbirths ever. Um, He's sitting on the table, legs propped up. The mom is right there between his legs, like, uh, you know, like the doctor telling him to push and then suddenly he stops pushing and he says, well, wait a minute, I'm a guy. Where is this baby going to come out? And then the mom looks right in his eyes and says, it's going to come out the exact same way it came in. And suddenly Jake starts screaming, he's, you know, he's, yes. he doesn't know what's going on. And then we get one of the most epic exploding penises ever. Uh yes, we actually get to see his penis explode. It's not a very long shot. It's literally like a 1 second shot, but We've it is
1: enough. <laughs> we'll get the
0: point four. definitely. <laughs> I mean, I was in pain for like 20 minutes after this cuz <laughs> basically you see the penis it it basically engorges and then explodes all over the parents, all over the the older, the mom and the dad. Um the exploding penis ends up killing Jake instantly. And, but the baby still hasn't come out at this point, mom, or they never give us their names. So Sandra's mom and dad, uh, pull the baby out of the gaping wound. And they show us every bit of that gaping wound in a fairly spectacular shot. Uh, she pulls the baby out and brings it up to a room puts it in a crib, and then we notice that the room has, like, 20 cribs in there. There's at least, like, a dozen to two dozen cribs in the room. So she tries to sneak out quietly, and she accidentally steps on, like, a squeaky toy. When she steps on the squeaky toy, we start hearing a bunch of babies start crying, and then what we basically see is we see a camera shot from within one of the cribs, and all we see is this demonic hand with, like, exaggeratedly elongated fingers, like, just reach up and grab at the bars of the crib, and then that's the end of segment number two. Ah, what'd you guys think of that one? I Uh, love this.
1: I love the fact that the end of this, the way this story wraps up, kind of suggests that like the daughter's not necessarily innocent in all this either. Because the fact that it's happened over and over and over it kind of like adds another element to the story.
0: Oh, she's definitely like an avenging angel type character. Like she's getting, you know, she's, she's kind of giving these douchebags or refuse to wear a condom. their are come up. now, obviously murder is not a proper uh, response to not wearing a condom, but you know, obviously this is a horror film. So that's what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I do still like the story. I, I do still like, like the kind of moral of the story, um, you know, don't don't fuck with women and then do the complete opposite of what you said you were gonna do, blah blah blah, because it's gonna it's gonna get you in the end. So yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I like it. I just it just felt like it was heading towards the obvious conclusion with all the oh, really yep. yeah, like you were mentioning earlier, all the heavy handed stuff. It was just it just it was yeah. like leading you to that conclusion way too easily. Yeah, like, I, I yeah. I thinking, go ahead. No, it's just that's like my main issue with it. It's just it's leading you to the obvious way too easily. Right, right. So yeah, I, I was actually expecting the twist, um, not to this degree, but I was expecting her to be the one. But I, yeah, no, I don't have uh, too many other too many issues with it. Um, just like that's that's like my main thing with it.
0: I like it because it didn't go where I thought it was going to go. Yes, it's very obvious that there's something up with that girl, but I thought it was going to turn out to be like a succubus thing, that she was like some kind of demon, you know, the sex demon, the the traditional female sex Mm. demon that takes advantage of guys and then kills them. That's where I thought they were going, or I thought potentially they were going to set her up, Sandra, as the Ravens and Tooth Fairy serial killer, something along those lines. But... I like that they went with the, uh, the, the demonic baby punishment type thing. It was just, you know, like Don said, yes, we know something's coming and we know that it involves Sandra and that she probably knows. I, I would say I guarantee she knows what she's doing, because like I said, um, during the sex scene, when she turns around the first time to get on her hands and knees, she actually cracks a little bit of a smile when he whips the condom off across the room. So I'm sure she heard that, and I and she definitely did not want to stop him. Like I said, I'm very okay with morality stories. I mean, you got to get at least one morality story in these anthologies. So I'm I'm very okay with this one. It is. Formulaic. And then you
2: have the, and then you have the entire reaction with the family when he walks in. It's like, oh God, you did it again. Damn, it, it. Honey.
0: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah like,
1: I love it too.
2: Their reaction is more, damn it, honey, we're not, you know, again. Like that's their whole yeah, reaction. Yeah, because when the like, mom's
1: like, "Get down here!" <laughs> like, yeah,
2: it's like, <laughs> "You did it again." Yeah, like I said, like that's the entire thing with them is that it's all, "Damn it, honey, again." <laughs> I so love yeah, it. you know, you know, ex- you knew exactly what she knew exactly what she was doing, but oh, yeah. it's just everything was just way too obvious lampshading kind of.
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: So yeah, yeah no, I, I'm with you. It's fun, but it's just they could have done like a little better job not spoiling it too early.
0: Sure, sure. But like I said, I, it worked for me. Yeah. I liked it. And it's nice and gory. We get a nice splat. So that's always fun. All <laughs> hey, right. Hey, so. <laughs>
2: hey, tits and dicks for everyone. There so. you go.
0: Exploding dicks. That's a podcast, isn't it? Ah, I don't know. All right. So uh, let's see. We are. Uh, that's the end of our second story. Uh, like I said, uh, called Better Safe Than Sorry. I have dubbed it that. Uh, we are now back at the mortuary and, um, we're not going to be here for long. This is probably the shortest time that we spend in between stories. Uh, basically, uh, the mortician just shows Sam the embalming room and in the embalming room, there is a woman, uh, lying on the slab. Um, they start talking, you know, uh, talking their random stuff. And, um, he basically says, so are you ready for this? And that's when he takes the, um, the the sheet off of her to expose that it is a woman a, a fairly young woman, kind of pretty, and and basically he starts grilling Sam about okay, so what do you see? Like you know, um, she obviously doesn't she doesn't see any injuries right away. She looks at her and says, oh, I don't really see anything wrong with her. Um, but they start, you know, he starts deducing a few things, but then she notices that he's, that the body is wearing a a wedding ring. So she just basically spits out, oh, look, she's married. And, and, you know, uh, Montgomery Dark is basically like, very good, very observant, see? And is there an inscription on the ring? And she looks inside the ring and it's got the, you know, the basic generic till death do us part inscription inside. And, um... That's when the mortician says, "Ah, how how predictable. And and then he starts talking about how sometimes till death do us part isn't enough, that death doesn't always end relationships. And then we go into our next segment, the third story, which I decided to call Wedded Bliss and what we have in this Thank story, God you
2: didn't go for the obvious. I was expecting you to say to left to us part. But No, yeah, I'm not I'm yeah. not that cheesy.
0: <laughs> I like Wedded bliss. I anyway, <laughs> So our story opens up and we see a young couple uh getting married. They're at their wedding. Um you know, they they look like they're late 20s, early 30s, maybe. Um, you know, it, it's a basic ceremony. They do their vows. They say their I do's. And then there's a little bit of a time jump after that. They don't tell us how much of a, chi- a time jump, which would have actually helped, I feel, because I, I really wanted to know how long this guy has been dealing with the situation that he's dealing with. It might have given a little bit more emotional weight to the performance. Not a big knock, really, honestly. Um, but anyway, we see him um, coming home with groceries one day, and he sees an old lady, uh, one of his neighbors in the hall, and she basically starts just chewing, yeah, or excuse me, starts talking his ear off as the older generation tends to do. He's obviously, you know, he's got a hand, he's got both hands full of groceries, plastic bags hanging from his hands, paper bags in his arms, and he's trying to help her get the elevator but he decides he does not want to use the elevator. He says he doesn't like elevators, especially this one. That'll come back into play here in a little bit. So after, uh, after he gets his neighbor into the elevator uh, safely, she then goes upstairs to her apartment and he takes the stairs. 12 flights. This guy ha- hates elevators so much, by the way, which they never explain. And this is one of the segments I was talking about earlier, that it's an incomplete story. There's a lot of stuff they don't tell us about this story. There's right.
2: nothing they tell us. This is, yeah, so, kinda yeah. no, this is, I mean, I'm, we're jumping ahead, but you brought it up. This is the one that I'm not a fan of because right. there's absolutely nothing they say in this one.
0: No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. This is, this there's
2: absolutely not nothing. Yeah.
0: So, um, so, Once he gets up to his apartment, we see that his wife that he had just married in the previous scene is bedridden, completely catatonic, just staring at the TV that's on in her bedroom. She doesn't speak. She doesn't move, you know, um... And this guy, this guy is so in love with her that he actually prepares these beautiful meals, puts the, plates them like it's a fucking like high class restaurant and then dumps it into a blender and mushes it up for his wife um, because she's catatonic soup and liquids are probably the only thing that she can ingest without choking. So he, they, I don't know if this is a gag, if this was an attempt at comedy or if this was an attempt to just show how much this guy loved his wife, but he was, I mean, he even made sushi, like rather than just take all the individual sushi ingredients and throw them in the blender, he actually rolled the entire sushi, cut it up into sections, garnished it, then threw it in the blender and mushed it up. And I'm just like, yeah, this is either comedy or this guy's in love. So I'll leave that to the individual viewer um we we get a quick scene of him trying to feed her um she you know he's feeding her like you would feed a child you know and and she's maybe getting like half of it down her throat, blah blah blah. Then we go to a scene the following morning where um the doctor and once again it's the same doctor from the last segment who told Jake that he was pregnant or who didn't tell Jake he was pregnant, but he uh once again makes another appearance in this segment. Uh, he shows up at the young couple's apartment, I guess, just to check up on her. He doesn't really, they don't show him actually doing anything, you know, with her or even showing them in the same room, taking her vitals, anything. Uh, it's just a quick scene with him in the kitchen, or the dining room, excuse me, and the husband is basically telling him, I, you know, uh, he's asking the doctor, how much do you think, how much longer do you think my wife will live? Carol, I believe was the wife's name. And the doctor tells him, well, in, in the condition that she's in right now, she she might make it another year. And you can kind of see the husband's expression change, and he starts talking to the doctor. I don't know how I'm going to do this for a year. You know, the guy obviously doesn't work. His wife needs 24-hour care, yet they're living, you know, in, in a fairly nice apartment. Actually, it's a pretty big, big ass, bigger apartment than any I've ever lived in. That's for damn sure. But um. Uh, The doctor kind of sees, you know, that the guy is, you know, he's very sad. He's complaining about how, I don't know how I'm going to pay these bills. I don't know how we're going to survive another year, blah, blah, blah. And then the doctor pulls out a bottle of pills and he tells the guy, "Um, here, take these pills. Um, If you give, if your wife is to ingest two of these tablets in a 24-hour period, she will fall asleep and die. Um, The guy doesn't actually get that right away. He thinks, oh, great, more fucking pills that I got to pay for. He's thinking that the doctor's giving them to him as a prescription for his wife. But then the doctor says, "Um, wait a minute, do you understand what I'm telling you? I'm telling you that these pills cannot be traced in an autopsy. It'll look like your wife just went to sleep and died in her sleep. And then instantly the husband's like, oh. But you you can definitely tell that's that's one of the things that kind of bothers me about this story and they even um sam in the wraparound story even makes a comment about how she doesn't feel that this guy did anything wrong and you know what i 100 percent agree that you know it's obviously a very sad situation when you've got a terminally ill family member but i mean this guy is going through incredible stress incredible financial obligations um Obviously, he never gets to leave his house unless it's to go get groceries. Um, and then, of course, the wife, Carol, you know, she's catatonic. Who knows if she's in pain, if she's comfortable, if she's happy. It just seems like it's a terrible thing to say, but I'm a terrible person, so I don't care. It See, I, I think I would have done the exact same thing that the husband does here. And what does he do? He decides to go ahead and use the pills. So that evening during dinner... He opens up two of the tablets, uh, puts the insides of the tablets into uh, her soup for that evening, and he starts to feed it to her. Once he's done feeding her the soup, um, you can see his face get really, really sad, you know, coming to the realization of what he just did. But then suddenly his wife grabs his arm. And mind you, this woman is 100% catatonic. She's not awake, she's not speaking, moving in any way, nothing. So the fact that, Right when he poisons her, she comes to, grabs his hand, and stares right into his eyes and He instantly starts to go through regret. Uh, he ends up getting up and he does the Heimlich maneuver on her to get her to vomit up all the soup. Um, he ends up Gross, getting all the but soup.
1: effective
0: yeah exactly i mean i don't know i 't know that you can make someone puke with the Heimlich maneuver, but whatever i 'll allow it um, <laughs> after she 's done puking. Um, he ends up going to the kitchen to grab something to clean up her vomit, but he forgets to strap her back in the chair. Cause like I said, she's catatonic. She has no control over herself. Um, so while he's in the kitchen, she ends up falling forward onto the table and he, and you know, at first it just looks like she fell down, well, not fell, but literally just fell forward onto the table with her head on the table. When he comes over to try to sit her back up upright it turns out she let her head landed on some sort of statue on the kitchen table and it's embedded in her fucking skull. Um, I don't think she was quite dead at that point, but when the husband notices the thing in her head, he drops her and she falls, her head falls down on the table even harder, embedding the statue even farther into, his, into her skull and pretty much finishing the job. He obviously freaks out because now there's blood all over the table, all over the dining room table. There's vomit, there's blood. It definitely looks like a violent scene. Uh, He ends up calling the doctor and telling, and, and he's basically incoherent. He's like, I I don't know what to do. There's blood there. You know, I, I use the pills, but there's blood, there's soup everywhere. I don't know what to do. And the doctor basically just says one thing. He says, just throw her in the ocean let the sharks do the rest, and never call me again, and hangs up the phone on them. Um, At that point, the the husband takes uh, Carol's body, and he finds a bridal chest that I assume belonged to Carol. Uh, You know, one of those large travel chests, those old-timey travel chests that people used to travel with. Um, And he tries to put her body inside of it. Unfortunately, she does not fit. He tries to bend her legs in a position that she can fit in there, but her legs keep popping out. So he realizes that he's going to have to do some dismembering to get her to fit in the box. Um, Right as he grabs an electric knife, like one of those electric carving knives for Thanksgiving, he goes to turn it on to... cut off her legs but as soon as the knife hits her legs she wakes up and starts screaming at him and attacking him um again very unexplained how the hell she survives with i think it's a horse statue jammed in her fucking forehead pretty damn far whatever again suspension of disbelief um it's like they're setting up supernatural elements but we don't really ever get them but that's fine um, so, like I said, after after she wakes up and attacks him, she he pulls the statue out of her forehead, which, of course, makes a big mess, blood everywhere, and then she falls back down, finally dead for the last time. At this point, then, he starts dismembering her body so that she fits into the bridal chest. Eventually, he gets her all in there. And decides, you know, he's going to throw the chest into the ocean, but he lives in an apartment building, don't forget, and he lives on the third floor, so he's obviously not going to take that chest down 12 flights of stairs, so he, fi- so he decides to use the elevator, and remember from earlier in the short, he has some kind of aversion to elevators that goes completely unexplained, so whatever. Um, he ends up getting into the elevator with the chest. Uh, The chest is too heavy for him to carry, so he's literally just dragging it, uh, not dragging it, pushing it down the hall. He pushes it into the elevator, and then, wouldn't you know it, the elevator ends up getting stuck in between floors. Um, Once he realizes that he's stuck, he tries to open the elevator doors to see if maybe he's close enough one way or another to one of the floors so that he can get himself and the trunk out but unfortunately he cannot he can only open the door a few inches and at that exact moment our old neighbor from at the very beginning of the segment comes out of her apartment and says uh is that you are you are you in the elevator? And obviously he's in there hiding, but he can't. It's an elevator. It, you know, he, it's not like he's going to be able to get away with anything. So he basically just says, yes, it's me, Mrs. blah, 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 whatever. And she's like, oh, elevator's stuck again, huh? And he says, apparently. And then she decides, well, I'm going to go and call the police. And who the hell calls the police for a stuck elevator? Is beyond me, but again, whatever. Um... She tries to leave to call the police, but he is, like, you know, pleading with her, no need to call the police, ma'am, everything is fine, blah, 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 I'm sure the elevator will wake up any minute now, it's just an old elevator, Uh, but she ends up going and calling the police. As she's walking away from the elevator, the elevator doors suddenly slam shut. And suddenly you start hearing like a wet sound effect, like he's stepping in a puddle or something. He looks down. There's fucking blood all over the bottom of the elevator floor, all over the floor of the elevator. Apparently he didn't wrap up the body well enough to keep the blood inside the trunk. So there's literally, and I'm talking like a pool of blood in the fucking elevator floor. He starts to panic, trying to figure out what can I possibly do And he tries uh, climbing out of the elevator, but he's unable to do that. Um, And then, like an idiot, he takes off his jacket to try to soak up all this blood. I I can't stress enough how silly it looks for a guy to try to soak up a pool of blood with one article of clothing. So, yeah, um, a silly choice on his part. But then suddenly the lights go out in the elevator, And then they come back on. And when they come back on, the elevator's moving again. And the guy is like, oh, thank God the elevator's moving. I don't know why he's relieved because he's now in an elevator full of blood and his dead body, his dead wife's body in a trunk. But he's mildly relieved. But then suddenly the elevator starts falling faster. It starts going down faster than it should be to just, you know, the normal speed that an elevator goes. And then suddenly it passes the lobby. And the down button just continues flashing. So he's literally, I mean, I don't want to use a silly cliche like drag to hell, but basically the elevator is falling endlessly to the point where he starts floating. The chest uh, inside the elevator starts floating. It's almost like one of those zero G uh, machines or things that we've seen Mm -hmm. where people are like floating in the air um to simulate to simulate weightlessness um so yeah that's what ends up happening he starts floating the chest starts floating and suddenly the chest opens while he's floating so the elevator is still falling very fast he's floating there's blood droplets of blood floating everywhere and the wife comes out of the chest but uh, of the uh, the bridal chest but it's not her face. It's a very fucked up demonic face. The eyes are giant and black. I mean, like, kind of like the fly, like the original fly. Big, black fucking eyes. And her mouth is wide open, like, you know, um, almost comically wide open. And her hair is floating, and she's floating. And it. This is the part that gets kind of weird. Well, this whole segment's kind of weird, but... It's like he freaks out when he first sees that his wife is out of the cabinet, out of the chest, but then she starts moving towards him, and it's almost like he looks less scared to the point where they eventually meet. They they're like floating in midair and they get together and they actually kiss. And I don't know if that's him um kind of just coming to terms with what he did and the punishment that's about to come. But basically, they end up exchanging a kiss in midair, and the segment ends, and that's it. We don't, uh, you know, I don't think, right, I don't think the elevator ever, well, yeah, because the elevator was going down forever, so yeah. Um, This is the segment I was talking about that had a really, really good score, and specifically, I'm talking about the elevator sequence, not the whole short During this elevator sequence, when he's floating and everything's happening, there's a beautiful score playing in the background, and he's seeing flashbacks of, like, his wedding day and different days, you know, throughout his marriage. Um, The guy is obviously not a bad guy. He seems like he's very much in love with his wife to the point where he's making out with her decrepit, demonic-looking dead body, so... And I think that's pretty much it. The segment ends with them kissing. Oh right, no, I'm very sorry. There is a, an extra little end to that. Basically the elevator door opens and there are police there. And for some reason the trunk is gone and the blood is gone, but he's holding on to his wedding album. He's um, he's basically in the elevator just holding on to his wedding album. And the last thing we see is the lights in the elevator flash and we see like a, a superimposition of a skull over his face when it flashes and the segment ends. So that's the end of the third segment. Yeah, this segment, though visually, it's very nice. It's shot well. It's just a very incomplete story. Why is he afraid of elevators? How long has he been living with his wife in that catatonic state? Um, what does he do for a living? I mean, the guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. How is he paying for all this? Um, there's so many unanswered questions. And then even the elevator segment itself, it's like, what the fuck is that supposed to represent? Like I said, the closest thing I can think of is just him coming to terms with what he did to his wife and accepting uh, the eventual punishment that he's going to get. Um, Cause like, like I said, during the final scene, when the, uh, when the elevator doors open and the cops are there, he's not like fighting or denying anything at all. He's basically just speaking in cryptic words. I forget specifically what he says, but he's you know, being just catatonic, kind of catatonic himself, but just repeating some random, you know, um, dialogue, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer, but uh, what'd you think of this segment guys?
1: Um, I... I actually thought it started okay. I actually kind of chuckled at the... at the scene at the dinner table where <laughs> it goes from her feeding the powder or the the pills to her, like, dying anyway for uh, the, uh... the hair, whatever the... Like, whatever he called it. Like, the classic hair thing. Um, but, yeah, it, it... it's still an uneven segment by the time we get to the end of it. A lot of, uh... Questions you kind of have about what exactly is a real reason for certain things. Some stuff are left unexplained. I didn't dislike it, but it was definitely one of the lower ones for me.
0: Yeah, I definitely did dislike it, but there's just a lot of missing information. Like, there's no real story arc here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a guy with an invalid wife decides to kill her, and then, you know, she... I don't know if she comes back or if that's all his imagination. Cause like I said, when the cops find him at the end, he's not covered in blood the way he should be. Right. I mean, with all the blood that was in the ele- elevator, he should have been covered head to toe, but he wasn't. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's like,
1: are they trying to say his guilt was manifesting some of this? I, exactly. I yeah. To say
0: but yeah, they definitely yeah. left it too open-ended, not enough of an explanation. And like I said, you know, we talk about the great anthologies um and, They have a knack. Like I said earlier, they have a knack for giving us a complete story, a beginning, a middle and an end. And usually they're very satisfying. Um, But sometimes filmmakers, when they're, when they're kind of stuck with a 30 minute runtime, but they have an idea in their head for, you know, a a 60 or 90 minute segment, they have to shrink it down to a half an hour. There's always going to be cuts. There's always going to be sacrifices made to the story. So, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that this was a larger story that just got cut, cut up to fit into this movie. And if that's the case, I would like to see a feature length of that. Um, I mean, you know, they would obviously have to add a lot, but I still wouldn't mind seeing it just so I can get some of my unanswered questions answered.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, like I said, this is the one that I didn't like at all. Yeah. And yeah, there's... I, I want to like this. I want to like the idea of what what's going on, because I like you said, the general principle of what's going on is intriguing, but it's just there's so many missing holes and, you know, no real information given about anything that it's I, – I kind of would like to see an expanded version just to see if there are any missing holes that were in there, but – if we're basing it just on what's shown here yeah this is not really that interesting
0: yeah that's valid like i said there's some cool set pieces there's some cool visual moments again it's another bloody segment um you know with some dismemberment here and there so i mean it's not all bad but yeah from a storytelling standpoint it's not very good so yeah and yeah listeners if anybody out there saw this and disagrees with us on this third segment and Maybe there's something um, about the narrative that we're missing. Please let us know. I would I'd love to be educated about movies or anthology segments that maybe I didn't like that. Maybe I was missing something because I'll admit I'm not the smartest guy out there. So, you know, there could be a narrative there that I'm missing or some kind of subtext, but whatever. So. Uh, We are, of course, at the end of the third story, so we are back at the mortuary, and at this point, the mortician is showing Sam the crematorium, yes, where they burn the bodies uh, of people that don't want to get uh, buried or don't have previous arrangements, things like that. And once again, we see the short coffin of the child whose funeral occurred earlier in the day. Um... The mortician turns the furnace on and opens the door exposing, you know, the large fire behind the door and he starts pushing the child's casket into the furnace. But just as he does that, Sam stops him and, you know, basically says, "Well, wait." Um and then she admits that she is not interested in the job that she knows this child and that she wanted to see him one last time. Um, and she you know she lets him know i'm here for him, I'm not here for the job and earlier earlier in this uh part of the segment they they talk about evil, and they talk about um the mortician tells Sam no evil deed is left unchecked or unpunished, if you will and uh Sam disagrees with them. she says, no, bad guys win all the time this this is a shitty world that we live in, and people get away with murder and rape and whatever else all the time. And the mortician kind of disagrees with her and says, no, I assure you, everyone pays for their crimes at some point or another. Um, So then she finally says, you know, I'd like to see the boy one last time, if you could. He opens up the casket, not showing the audience so we don't get to see what the boy looks like. But don't forget, this is the boy who earlier, the mortician, didn't want to tell the story and didn't want her to uh, want Sam to see the body. So Sam actually turns it around on the mortician and says, well, I'm going to tell you his story. And then we uh, we go to our final segment, uh, which I decided to call the boy in the box. And what this segment starts out with a babysitter, a cute little brunette babysitter, uh, who's babysitting a young girl. Uh, she ends up going downstairs to answer the phone. It's her boyfriend who's trying to you know, convince her to let him come over. She says, no, absolutely not. What part of no visitors don't you understand? And just as she hangs up the phone with him, the camera then pans outside to show the POV shot of someone with a mask on. And then we see um you know a a nefarious character with like a just a white a plain white mask over his head and we actually get a title card called the babysitter murders and i know all my hardcore horror fans know where that title comes from right right Uh, do Uh, we have to nope we don't because if they don't know i'm not gonna tell yeah if you don't know the babysitter murders look it up anyway so uh, the title card, the babysitter murders, comes up, and then we see the killers start walking towards the house with the brunette babysitter. But then out of nowhere, um, oh, right, no, no, we, we, we still get more segment of uh, this guy kind of stalking this little brunette babysitter. Uh, but then we go to another house. Uh, the camera goes to a, another house, and we see Sam, uh, the girl that we've been seeing, you know, throughout the... Uh, throughout the movie, and uh, she is, at least it's implied that she is there babysitting uh, a a boy named Logan, and, you know, she basically, you know, she uh, she checks the voice messages, and the voice message actually says, hi, Sam, I'm calling to check in on Logan, um, just making sure that everything's okay, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this segment will cut back and forth between reality, which is the Sam stuff, and then uh, the fictional movie, The Babysitter Murders. Uh, we, we know based on the character, that's the focus. So whenever Sam's on screen, it's real world. Whenever it's the short-haired brunette, cute girl, it's The Babysitter Murders. So sometimes it's not obvious, but just look for uh, the focus of the story of that particular section. Uh, Sam then goes upstairs to check up on Logan. He's in bed asleep. She kind of rubs his head, um, you know, just, uh, you know, comforting him, whatever. But like I said, he's out cold. Then she goes downstairs and she finds like an old timey, like, 50s radio. And she turns it on. And of course, 50s style music comes up on the radio. Um, she starts dancing in the kitchen, having a good old time. Uh, and then the power goes out. Suddenly all the lights go out, power's out, she's not sure what's going on, but then the power briefly comes back on, and we, and the, a, a news report comes up on the uh, television. Yes, uh, W Exposition, uh, every horror, uh, horror movie viewer's favorite TV channel, the one that explains everything that's happening. <laughs> Basically, uh, we see a report once again about the Raven's End Tooth Fairy serial killer, uh, who has once again claimed a couple of more lives. Uh, but then they have a, an additional uh, update talking about the local um, mental institution in town there, which they have talked about. Um, both the mortician and Sam have brought it up at different points throughout the movie, that there is you know, a, a, some kind of mental institution there in the town. Um we then see Sam start baking she's getting the she's basically preheating the oven. Um, she's about to make something. we're not sure what uh, and then, uh, like I said, that's when the news reports come up and like I said, the second update is the one that says, um, because of the storm that's happening right now, the security system at the local mental institution has uh, failed, and that potentially some inmates may have gotten out during the first update they don't tell you they say we think maybe someone got out but we're not 100% sure we're not done you know taking a head count or whatever then we see Sam um, kind of cleaning up in the kitchen preparing to cook she goes outside and throws away a bag of garbage uh, but in front of the bag of or behind the, ba- uh, the garbage can that she puts the garbage in we then see a window and the window has been broken. Um, A very large uh, hole is in the window, so obviously they're setting up that someone got in the house while Sam wasn't paying attention. Sam then goes back into the house, and she finds someone in her kitchen. Well, not her kitchen, but the kitchen of the house that she's in. There is a grown man just sitting there crying and bleeding from the side of his head. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's incoherent. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to know where he is or know what's going on. Sam is obviously scared cause there's a stranger in the kitchen, but she realizes that he's hurt and that he seems to be authentic when he says, you know, there's something wrong, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he, uh, he starts explaining to her, I don't know what's going on. She, she lets him know, oh, you're bleeding. Let me try to help you. She grabs a rag. She, tries, she puts it over the wound on this guy's head and tries to help him. But then he suddenly, like, snaps to a different personality, the guy that is. And suddenly he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? And, inst- and instantly Sam is like, I'm trying to help you. And the guy once again gets sad and starts apologizing. But then the phone starts ringing. Um, But obviously Sam is in the kitchen with this mystery guy and she doesn't like run for the phone to answer it. And the guy actually grabs both of her hands as the phone is ringing. The phone ends up ringing so much that the answering machine picks up and the answering machine is Logan's mother. Um, on the phone, basically yelling at Sam, why aren't you answering the phone? You know that there's a killer out, uh, blah, blah, blah. You need to answer the phone, basically admonishing her for not answering the phone. Um, At this point, um, the man in the kitchen realizes that there's a child in the house. And on the message, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to mention that on the message, Uh, from Logan's mother, she mentions there's a child killer loose. How are you not answering the phone? Blah, blah, blah. Right when she mentions the child killer, you see uh, the guy, the mystery guy's demeanor change. He starts to get a little angry. But then, in one of the most surprising moves ever, I was so happy that this happened, at the time anyway, out of nowhere, Sam grabs the guy's hand and puts it in a meat grinder. Um, one of the old classic hand-cranked meat grinders, not the electric ones. And she literally starts grinding his fingers off. And uh, instantly I write in my notes, I don't even care if this guy's the killer or not, bravo to this girl for acting quickly. You know, she didn't even think. She just grabbed his hand and stuck it in the uh, meat grinder. Um, He's able to get his hand out of the meat grinder and kick Sam into the pantry. Um, then Sam comes out of the pantry, grabs one of the large kitchen knives hanging on the wall there, and goes to attack the mystery guy, and he knocks her out with a cutting board, um, you know, one of those wooden cutting boards. He knocks her out, she's out cold, then we see the mystery male, uh, go to the phone, uh, cause the phone is still ringing, the mom, Logan's mom is calling over and over again, and the mystery guy a- ends up answering the phone, but at this point, this is after Sam has already ground his uh, a couple of his fingers off of one of his hands. She smashed his mouth with a meat tenderizer, knocking out some of his teeth. So when he picks up the phone, he's having trouble speaking. It sounds like he's just incoherently yelling into the phone, you know, basically just going, ah, rah, 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 you know, something along those lines. Um And then we realize, oh, yeah, it's because his fucking teeth got knocked out by the uh, meat tenderizer. Um, Sam is able to get the upper hand on the mystery man. She gets behind them. She actually puts them in a rear naked choke, which I was, uh, again, I was giving this girl kudos. Um, She puts them in a a rear naked choke for anybody who knows MMA. It's, of course, a choke hold from MMA. Um, He then flips her over onto a glass table, which she smashes right through and then passes out. After she passes out, we then go to more footage of the babysitter murders, uh, the movie that's playing on the television. Because, like I said, the power came back on at this point. Um, So we see the killer with the cool white mask, uh, you know, going around the house, basically killing everyone in it. Uh, Then we go back to our mystery man uh, who is now in Logan's room and he, he basically finds the little kid's bed and rips the uh, sheets off it because he thinks he sees like a, a shape underneath the sheets. He moves the sheets, but there's nothing there. It's also, it's also intercut with, like I said, with the babysitter murders movie that's playing on the screen so that when the real mystery man whips the sheet off, It instantly goes to the movie, where the killer in the movie did the exact same thing. He yanked the sheet off the bed, but in the movie, there's a kid on the bed, and the killer grabs the kid, and we don't actually get to see what the killer in the movie does with the kid. But then in real life, like I said, there's no one in the bed. At this point, Sam wakes up, she comes to, and she grabs the fireplace poker from the fireplace, the big metal poker uh, that we've seen in countless horror films. She she charges into Logan's room, and the mystery man is standing there over Logan's bed, basically yelling, where's the kid? Where's the kid? Where's the boy? I know he's in here. Sam inadvertently looks uh, to her left to a closet, al- almost like a little cubbyhole closet, and we see the door shake a little bit, pretty much letting us know the boy is in there. Um, the killer smiles, or, well, the mystery man smiles, And, uh, basically at this point, the power goes out again. And the only lighting that we get for this next scene is lightning strikes. So whenever the lightning strikes, it's lit up. And when there's no lightning, it's just completely dark. All we hear are the sound effects. And basically what's going on is Sam and the mystery man are having an epic battle. Just they're throwing shit at each other, swinging weapons at each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, so once again, um, and, and again, this girl must know MMA because during this fight, she takes a Superman punch. Did you notice that, Mike? Fucking total GST <laughs> Yeah. yeah punch, <laughs> which was actually pretty awesome. She pulled it off really well. Unfortunately, the mystery man is able to get the upper hand, punches her in the face multiple times, knocking her out once again. At this point, uh, the Mystery Man is kind of looking around the room. Uh, He goes over to the little closet thing to see if Logan is hiding in there, but when he opens it, there's no Logan. The kid is gone. Um, Sam is somehow, uh, she comes to for like the third or fourth time, Uh, she starts crawling down the hall away from Logan's room. Uh, The Mystery Man then comes out of Logan's room, and is following her slowly, as most movie killers will do. And then, he's, he, then he gets on top of her. And he starts punching her. And he starts choking her. And basically, you know, the, the guy, the mystery man, keeps saying, where's the boy? Where's the boy? And then he starts choking Sam to death. Uh, well, he doesn't complete it. But anyway, he starts choking her with the intention of killing her. But then she says, wait, you're not a killer. And the mystery man starts to cry and lets go of her and says, you're right. I'm not a killer. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. He starts like I said, he starts crying. He gets up off of Sam um, and Sam ends up getting up and standing in front of him. It seems like they're about to have almost like a civil conversation. Like they, they're they're almost friendly, but then out of nowhere, Sam's demeanor changes, and unfortunately, they are standing right at the top of the stairs of like a banister. And Sam, uh, I forget exactly what she says to the mystery man, um, and ends up just pushing him over the ledge, and she pushes him over. Oh, right, that's what she says. She says this is over. Uh, Yeah, that's all she says. She just looks at him and says, this is over. She throws him over the banister. He lands headfirst on the stairs, cracking his skull open, uh, continues rolling down the stairs, lands at the bottom of the stairs, and he's out cold. Now, what Sam and the mystery man didn't notice is that the owners of the house, which, by the way, it's our doctor once again from from the last two segments, him and his wife end up getting home just as uh, the mystery man is thrown down the stairs. Unfortunately, they're outside trying to get into their house, but the chain lock is engaged, which seems stupid to me. It's like, if that's your house and you hear commotion in there and your son is in there, wouldn't you just break the fucking door down? It doesn't cost that much to replace a chain lock, for God's sake. So, But instead, Dad, in his infinite wisdom, decides to go around the house to the back, that's the doctor of course we then see sam walking down the stairs uh to join uh, to kind of join up with the mystery man once again and then um just as uh i'm trying to think of the order of events just as the dad is coming in the back door Sam takes the television that she's been watching all night, the old timey television that was playing the babysitter murders, and she smashes it right on the mystery man's face. And I actually love this shot because what they did is they put a camera inside the television so that it's pointing out the screen. So that when it comes down and smashes the mystery man's face, we actually get to see his face split open and shit just start coming out of it. So very original shot. I thought that was pretty cool. I've never seen a television kill like that before. Um, Sam, after smashing the, fa- uh, smashing the mystery man's face, then uh, leaves. She just runs away. And finally, the doctor and his wife are able to get into the house. They move the television to see who's under the TV. Lo and behold, the dad says, Oh my God, it's Sam, the babysitter. Yes, my friends, Sam, the babysitter, is actually the mystery man. And what does that make our little blonde girl, Sam? Yes, she is the Ravens and Tooth Fairy serial killer. And the way that we get is the parents smell something cooking in the kitchen they go out to the kitchen they open the oven and there's their son roasting in the oven he's already just completely charred black apparently he must have burned during the battle um the the fight between sam and the mystery man but like i said sam the girl isn't actually sam sam is actually the guy so that's the big reveal for our fourth segment uh, yeah, what'd you guys think of that final segment, The boy in the Box? <laughs>
2: Anybody this uh earlier uh this is actually a short film that he'd made several years before.
0: Oh, nice. Okay, I didn't. Yeah,
2: yeah. That, uh, yeah, that uh, this is actually a uh, segment that he made. I think in 2015 or 16. I can't remember, Ooh. but I remember hearing about it before. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it just gets a little overblown. I think with all the back and forth stuff, like they have a lot more. They'd react a lot more to the, to the impact and punishment that they dish out on each other without not really having any thing come to terms with it Mm -hmm. but um, overall i really like it like you said the fact that she takes the initiative when we don't know the twist for for once yeah when you know because we don't know the twist for a while so the fact that she takes the initiative and starts beating him is a really fun thing and it adds like a really nice intensity to it and i love the atmosphere yeah with the flashing lights and the lightning and all that stuff but I just think the amount of punishment that they dish out to each other just makes it a little, little unrealistic. But I don't have much of an issue with that.
0: Yeah, it's valid. I mean, I don't know that any of yeah. them were kill blows, though. I mean, you got the ground. Yeah, but
2: it's, but it's uh, just like a cumulative, cumulative thing. That's, I, that's I, what I, I understand. Think. Understand. Yeah, I, to me, it's a cumulative thing, but it's not like a detrimental issue.
0: Yeah, ultimately it's a horror film, and you know yeah. we gotta suspend disbelief. So, yeah, and if, if the guy would have died too early, it makes the story too short, and right. they gotta figure out a different way to, you know, to expose the uh, reveal, blah blah blah. So, I mean, it's not a perfect segment, but I, I I really enjoyed it. I thought Sam's performance, like I said, the actress that plays Sam, I thought she did a great job here, convincing us that she was the. Uh, the victim, you know, the, the one who was in danger. But then, you know, yeah. by, the, by the end of the segment, it's turned around on us. I thought that was clever. I liked mm-hmm. it a lot. Hey, Mike, you still with us?
1: Yep. What did um, you think of this? I agree. I liked the segment. I thought it was a pretty decent way to end.
0: Yeah. Well, for the final segment, anyway, the final truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: that's what I mean. Yeah, we still got the wraparound yep. Conclusion.
0: So yeah, so there's a, there's another cool segment. I'd say at least three of the four segments are winners in my book. And even the one, uh, like I said, the third segment that I called Wedded Bliss, even though it's not a strong segment, there are still elements of it that are pretty cool. It's still violent. It's still gory. Um, you know, if, if you can accept just the craziness of it and the unexplained plot points of it, I think a, a lot more people will get into it. And ultimately, I thought the ghost did look good um in the elevator during the third segment. I you know, it's CG obviously, but you know, uh they did what they could with the budget they had. I'm not sure how big the budget for this movie is, but you know, it's probably in the mid-range somewhere. Definitely not a big budget, but definitely not a small one either. Um and yeah, uh fourth segment, like I said, very satisfying ending. I was very happy with how it ended. Even though You know, by the time the segment's over, Sam has left and we're not 100 percent sure what happened. But then, like I said, after the segment, we go back to the mortuary and um, Montgomery Dark and Sam are both still in the crematorium. Um, Obviously, once the story's over, uh, the mortician knows specifically who this girl is. Um, She's not hiding it anymore. And she even opens up the casket and takes one of the kid's teeth. Apparently, she keeps a tooth as a um, souvenir, hence her nickname, the Tooth Fairy. But of course, because our quote unquote mystery man in that fourth segment kept waking up and ruining her plans, she never got a chance to get her tooth. She had to leave without getting it. So that was her whole intention this whole time, was just to get to this kid before his body was cremated so that she could get her souvenir. So, like I said, we are back at the uh, crematorium. Um, and the girl, uh, Sam, I- I'm still gonna call her Sam, even though it's probably not her real name. Um, she starts to act like she's not gonna do anything, like you know the, the, like she's gonna leave peacefully and not fuck with the mortician or anything. But then she the knife that she just used to get the tooth out of uh, Logan's body she ends up stabbing Clancy Brown right in the midsection. She stabs and then twists the knife. And as she's twisting it, she says, see, sometimes the bad guys do win. We don't always get our comeuppance. And then the mortician falls to the ground dead. As she's walking out of the crematorium, she hears the mortician start to laugh. And Clancy gets up. Stands straight up and basically tells her, um, you made the biggest mistake that any author can possibly make. And he says, not knowing your audience. And as he says, not knowing your audience, he pulls his hands away from the wound, the stab wound, to show green goo coming out, not blood, but some kind of like, almost like Nickelodeon slime, uh, just oozing out of him. And of course he starts laughing. At this point, Sam starts to run away, um, basically trying to find a way out of the uh, place, out of the mortuary itself. But the mortuary at this point turns into a labyrinth. She's having trouble finding the exit. Um, and the whole place is coming down around her too. It's almost doing like a, a fall of the House of Usher type thing where you know bits of the ceiling are falling down, pictures are falling off the walls, blah, blah, blah. Finally, she gets to the front door and she still hears the mortician standing right behind her laughing. She opens the front door, runs out the door, but then turns around and notices she's still in the house. Uh, Then she does it again. She, She looks at the front door, opens it, runs out the front door, but again, she's still back in the house. Finally, they show her running out, and they actually show us exactly what's happening. There's some kind of portal at the door that, you know, is basically as she goes through it, it's spitting her back into the mortuary, basically, basically not allowing her to leave. The uh, the mortician then shows up and just starts laughing again and says, yeah, uh, you're you're not going to be able to get out of here. You he basically he basically says something along the lines of you've got the job. Like, you know, in a kind of a joking manner. The job is yours. Something along those lines. Um, They then go to the main library. Remember earlier when the mortician took her into his office, he had a small library in there. Well, actually a big library for most of us, but for him a small one. At this point now, she runs into the real library, and this room is gigantic. Vaulted ceilings, books on the walls all the way up, and then the mortician shows up. Uh, on the catwalk above her, and he starts to, you know, just kind of starts to explain to her again, like I told you, uh, evil always gets his punishment, and he starts to talk about himself, he starts to talk about how, you know, I am... You know, I, I've been the mortician for however long. I've been tasked with telling these people's stories moving forward. He's, he talks about how when he was younger, he was just like her, kind of a... He doesn't say specifically that he's a murderer or a criminal, but basically that she's, or that he was a wandering soul traveling the country uh, just like her, blah, blah, blah. So basically implying that he probably was some kind of a bad character before. And every time he says a line, he taps his cane on the floor, and two or three books will fall off the the cabinet. Uh, Excuse me, off of the shelves, uh, down on the level that Sam is standing on, like I said, below the catwalk. Then, once again, uh, the mortician says, as I said before, evil always gets his punishment. You know, you can't escape your fate. And then what ends up happening is the books that fell off the shelf suddenly open on their own, and we start seeing images like drawings in the book of, from all the stories that we've seen. We see a picture of Sam. We see a picture of the couple looking into the oven to see their son dead, you know, roasted in there. And then out of nowhere, one of the books starts to burn. Uh, The pages start to char, turn black, and then suddenly we see a ghostly hand reach out from the book, and then another hand, and then uh, basically what looks like a charred child pulls itself out of that particular book, and then she turns around and notices that all the books have children coming out of them. And what I gather from that is the, the books that fell off the shelf are the people that she killed, her stories, the stories that she ended up writing herself because, you know, she's the one who dictated the fate of all these children. Um, one of these charred zombie babies walks up to her and tries to take a bite out of her, but all his teeth fall out. Don't forget, she's called the Tooth Fairy. So she probably took out a few of this kid's teeth, leaving him with the inability to bite. But then the rest of the children end up attacking her, and they basically, we don't actually get to see it, but it's implied that they just kind of rip her to pieces, literally dismember her, pull chunks of her skin off, everything else. And then we see the ghost Logan, uh, the first child that came out of the book, he actually grabs his tooth back from Sam, puts it back in his mouth, and that's and then the screen goes black, kind of implying that that's the end of our story. But um, uh, the screen fades back up, and then we see the mortician sewing Sam's body back together. Now, obviously, he's a mortician. That's his job. So, you know... You might assume that he's just doing it so that he can give Sam a proper burial or cremation or whatever. Uh, But then what happens is once he's done sewing her all back together, he leaves um, the embalming room, goes back up to his office, and enters one final entry into one of his journals, probably the story that he just finished, uh, you know, finishing up that story and then you see him get dressed he puts his coat on he puts his overcoat on his hat and then he walks out of the mortuary he takes a step out the front door of the mortuary and he starts walking down the stairs once he gets out of the house and into the sunlight you kind of see his skin start to kind of get blotchy and dark and start to deteriorate and then all of a sudden the mortician implodes And then it explodes into just a cloud of dust. So apparently, again, what I gather from that is the mortician, uh, you know, did what he needed to do. He found a replacement for himself. And that was his escape. You know, obviously, I mean, if he's been the mortician for as long as it's implied that he has, then this is definitely a happy ending for him. He's able to escape his fate. And he is now free from all of this. But... After his body dissipates in dust, we then see Sam wake up on the embalming table inside the mortuary and she looks like Frankenstein. She looks like she's been sewn together from, uh, you know, the individual parts of her body. Um, We then get another time jump, a a short one, uh, where we see the help wanted sign kind of fall off of the uh, Ravenswood mortuary sign and then the last scene of the movie is we see Sam now in her mortuary role and once again she's dressed like a mortician so apparently it is a fucking uniform that you have to wear you have to look like a gothic Victorian vampire to be a mortician so (laughs) that's pretty cool I'm okay with that but then this final scene she is um, she's sitting at the desk that used to be, um, uh, Montgomery darks. And she's talking to the Asian kid from the very beginning of the movie. Remember, uh, the kid with the camera, the kid who ended up leaving his camera in the house. And it it looks like he's interviewing her because he's got like a notepad out. And she basically finishes telling her story and she closes the book And we see the Asian kid kind of writing, and the last thing that the kid says, well, it's getting late, I should probably leave. And then Sam just looks at him and says, wait, but I'm about to start dinner. And then movie fades to black, closing credits, and that is the Mortuary Collection 2020. Um, The reason I mentioned earlier that I had a problem with this with just the very, the epitaph, that little part with Sam as the new mortician and the Asian kid is that it's implied that she's now going to kill that Asian kid and continue her evil ways. What kind of punishment is that? Like she's obviously being punished for all her evil deeds by becoming the new mortician at Raven's end, but then they still allow her to continue killing children. That seems really odd to me. what do you guys think?
2: No, that I've always said that the wraparound doesn't. Um, the, the main problem with it is the wraparound, and that's exactly what I've been going on about. That's exactly what I mean. You hit it exactly what I've what I've been saying since I saw it. In that, yes, the entire film is her search for re- for punishment from what's been going on, but then everything about yeah. it makes it seem like she's part of. You know, she's going to keep going on, so where's the punishment? Like, no, yeah, that's exactly what I've been saying. And I know Mm -hmm. I haven't, yeah, I haven't really said much because nobody's seen it yet, but that's exactly what I've I've been talking about. And that's exactly one of the things I said earlier about it being going on a bit too long, is that the epitaph should have ended with her being swallowed up and becoming the mortician, greeting it with... Greeting, you know, in that that reveal with her in the mortician costume, that should have been the ending.
0: Yeah. Honestly, the shot of Ghost Logan putting the tooth back in his mouth should have been the end. I mean, I understand that they have to kind of complete the story to let us know that Montgomery Dark is now free of his punishment, but I honestly didn't need it. Like, I would have been okay ending it there and just assuming that, you know, she is either dead or the new mortician either way. But, yeah, to, to let her continue to kill children, innocent children, it just doesn't seem like much of a punishment. And now she can actually get away with it even easier because she doesn't have to go anywhere. They come to her. So, yeah, it definitely left me scratching my head. It's like yeah. the the moral of the story was kind of left a little too hazy for me. I would have liked right, to have yeah. seen Sam. I mean, yeah, Sam gets her comeuppance in the sense that she's torn apart by the ghosts and then sewn back together, and now she's an undead mortician. But, yeah, that that whole thing with allowing her to continue her... Yeah, name, that's... it. Eh, eh, I just, yeah... That, I'm not going to say it ruined it. It didn't ruin the movie for me, but I thought it wasn't the correct note to end on.
2: Right, yeah, you've you've stumbled upon what I've been saying ever since since it came out. That's exactly what I've been saying. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to reveal it because nobody's seen it, because, yeah, for those that didn't know, I actually saw this when it screened at Fantasia several months ago Mm -hmm. and revisited it for the show, but... Yeah, every in all of our chats, I've always said that the wraparound was the weakest thing, and that's you stumbled exactly onto what I yeah. what I've been talking about.
0: Which is too bad because the, the wraparound was actually my favorite part of it until that very last scene. Like I, I, lo- uh, I like I said, I think Clancy Brown was pitch perfect casting for that role. I thought that the actress, what's her name, Caitlin Custer, did a great job as Sam slash the Tooth Fairy. Um like I said, I have no problem with the performances. I have no problem with any of the technical aspects of the film. It's just to leave, to leave, to to let that be the last taste in my mouth at the end of this movie is really sour. It's like, you know, because yeah. you walk away thinking, well, then she wasn't really fucking punished. Now yeah. she's immortal and she's going to kill kids forever. Exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah unless it's a matter of like, oh, we flipped her our side. So that's the trade off. I don't know.
2: Ah, But it doesn't give that impression because she's going after the innocent guy. Yep. So she wouldn't, it's not as if, you know, if they were to flip it to her going after evil kids just like she was when she was alive, she would have done that to somebody that we would have seen earlier as like a pickpocket or, you know, like a vandal or something. And she would have used the job as sort of like a karmic punishment. But yeah. it, it's just some innocent guy who's going around, you know, like the town newspaper reporter yep. or like yeah. doing it for his own like personal little like, you know, life in the small town kind of a blog or something. Sure. So, yeah, I don't really see it as like karmic is like her dishing it out as karmic justice for kids like her. But just she's doing it again. Only now she's immortal.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, so. Like I said, ultimately, it doesn't hurt my overall rating of the movie. I still really, really enjoyed it. I still really highly recommend it. Some people might not even have an issue with that little final scene. And if you don't, awesome. You're going to end up liking the movie even more than I did, which is a lot. (laughs) So, yeah, that's about it for me, Mike. Yeah, it seems to
1: be getting really positive stuff said. I think people are liking this one across the board. Oh, yeah, it's got
0: like a 7 on IMDb, right? Or it it did the other day. Uh... Um,
1: uh I can, it is sitting at well it's down to 6.7 now but that's still pretty uh, high
0: no th- th- for a horror film that's very high anything over a five from imdb is good for horror but yeah it, it was sitting at like a seven or 7.1 last week and i'm and i was really surprised but you know obviously i shouldn't be because i heard nothing but positive things about it from the day it was released and Finally, getting to watch it this weekend for the show. Yeah, it was definitely a treat. So I'm very happy with it.
1: Uh-huh. Cool. Well, um, that is going to end our discussion on the mortuary collection and this episode. But before we get out of here, let's find out where else we can be heard. Venom, we just put out No More Room in Hell number 25. It's uh, yep. Dark Discussions debut. So Indeed. that is out there. We discussed a couple of Derek's crazy Asian cinema picks and <laughs> Executive Koala and Tokyo Zombie. And we had Moods from 22 Shots of Moods and Horror as a guest. So.
2: Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks. I can tag him then. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very fun um, episode. Yeah,
0: great, great episode. Um, Tokyo Zombie is a movie that I've loved pretty much since it came out. Absolutely love it. So, you know, obviously I'm going to gush about it on the episode. Executive Koala was a first time watch for both me and Mike. So that was definitely an experience. And uh, <laughs> I'll leave our opinions on that one for the show. You'll have to listen to that. But yeah, I can only it. imagine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's No Real Room in Hell episode 25, our debut on the Dark Discussions Network. Um, And then as far as me, the only other thing that I'm really working on besides No More Room in Hell and Fresh Cuts is the commentary podcast, It's Not Horror Okay, with Mr. Neil Lemoy, um, the hosts from the Friday Nightmares podcast, and Mr. Android Virus from the Android Vision Horror Show Um, on the last episode. I think I might have mentioned it already. We looked at 1981's Nighthawks, a uh, very underrated action movie starring Sylvester Stallone, Rucker Hauer, Billy D. Williams, and Lindsay Wagner. Um, for you youngsters who don't know who Lindsay Wagner is, that's the bionic woman. And for you incredibly youngsters who don't know who Billy D. Williams is, shame on you. That is Lando Calrissian. So. Uh, but like I said, that's a movie that came out before any of those guys really blew up. This is this is after Rocky, yes, but it's before Rambo and all of the big action movies, and, and especially like Rocky 3 and 4 that actually became like cultural ph- phenomenons, so um, this is before Rucker Hauer was popular, you know, this is before The Hitcher and Blade Runner and all that stuff, this is, um, you know, for Billy D. Williams, it's literally the year after he debuted as Lando in The Empire Strikes Back, so... It's, it's just an underappreciated movie that I feel more people need to see, and we had an absolute blast on that commentary because for once we looked at a legitimately good film, so <laughs> that's always fun. Uh, so check that out. That is available currently. Uh, I believe that's also on the Dark Discussions podcast network. And then, as far as underwater kaiju from outer space and in the Mic of Madness, unfortunately, those are both on extended hiatuses. While our hosts take care of other obligations that they have in their lives, so uh, I'm I'm a podcaster adrift in a sea of no podcasts. So, what are you gonna do?
1: <laughs> cool, cool. How about you, Don? Anything people should be hearing?
0: Uh, just my weekly
2: appearances here Um, you know Bay of Blood is still just we're uh, basically just waiting around for something to do so yeah I'm basically just this so
1: cool well hopefully we're keeping you somewhat busy on a weekly basis All right, Venom another week or going into next episode we'll have plenty to choose from
0: Oh, we've got um. a lot. Yeah, Shutter dropped a couple of things. Netflix is dropping two movies this week. Uh, we also have, um, what, May the Devil Take You 2, which is, of course, the sequel to May the Devil Take You. That comes out this week on VOD. Yeah, we've got a lot of options. But that, um, the one that's really sticking out to me is that Spanish film that just dropped on Shutter. I forget the exact name of it, but it's an address. It's like 30- um, 32...
2: 32 Malas. Malastrana
0: or Malastana, Malastana Street, something like that. Yeah, yeah I know exactly yeah, what
1: you're talking yeah, I, about because when I opened Shutter today, that had actually pushed uh, Mortuary Collection like a couple slots over on the featured
0: uh, menu. Yeah, that so. one. Yeah, that one just dropped like yesterday, maybe or maybe Friday. Maybe it dropped, but yeah, that that's like the newest thing yeah, on Shutter right now. I
2: think it's Malastran,a yeah.
0: that. But obviously, this is Halloween week, so we've got a lot of uh, releases. I mean. The remake of The Witches drops this week. The remake of The Craft drops this week. Um, I, I don't know that I'm really all that interested in reviewing those for Fresh Cuts, but, you know, I keep the door yeah, open. Yeah, I'm just
1: going to pretend you didn't say either of ah, really. ah,
0: ah, ah. I mean, the nice thing about it is that with the fact that there's so many releases, I mean, we could potentially do like an extra episode later this week because there's so much Halloween stuff dropping. And there's mm-hmm. a slew of other stuff. There's something called Spell that's dropping. um, I mean, I looked at the October list of releases and, man, we had, like, over 50 horror movies this month, Uh, you know, brand-new 2020 horror films. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot on our plate to choose from for our next few episodes.
1: For sure. So we will try to get it narrowed down and pick something soon and be all set for next week. Um, With that, uh, I think it's time to get out of here. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will catch you next
0: time. Stay out of moratorium.